Um, open your Bibles, if you would. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1. This being the uh, final Sunday of Advent, uh, we're going to talk about love, as Patrick Lewis has already pointed out. Specifically, agape love, that overwhelming love that God has towards us. Now, we did talk about that a few weeks back. We were in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, and so I'm just going to touch lightly on it. But what I really would like to do, what I would really like to do this morning, is talk about love in connection with another word that we don't normally associate with it. Um, in fact, some might find them antithetical to one another, depending on your life experience. And that's the word righteousness. Now, depending on your, again, your upbringing, your experience, I know some people, uh, that word may carry an even negative connotation when you think about a righteous person. It may not be an entirely positive image that comes to mind. Um, and, and I think that if, if you do have that experience, if that is your feeling, you're not, you're not in bad company. Um, the Apostle Paul says something in Romans chapter 5, um, that I never really understood until I thought about it in this way, um, where he's talking about the fact that Jesus died for us, and he said, no one would dare die for a righteous person, but somebody might dare die for a good person. And I think that's what he's saying. The kind of people that come to mind, is, you know, you say they're righteous, I'm thinking, let them go, right? Fine. But a good person, I'd lay down my life. So if that's your experience, then this may be for you this morning. And if not, if you, if you don't have that, well, then maybe you'll still get something out of this. So um, we're going to talk about love through the lens of righteousness. And to illustrate that, we have our text this morning. So Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I do pray this morning that my voice will hold together long enough uh, to get, Father, said what needs to be said. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to do that work. Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're going to talk about love, the love that we express to others by placing their needs, their wants, their values before our own. That's the traditional definition we've used for agape love, but I want to do it by connecting it to the idea of righteousness. And I'm going to do it by looking kind of briefly, because we have looked at both of these words recently, looking at the word love, looking at the word righteousness, but then more importantly, seeing how they connect in the character of this man, Joseph. And I think it's really important that we understand the relationship between these two ideas, love and righteousness, because you know, Joseph encountered a very difficult situation, understatement of, of the year, right? Um, and he was caught between two different values or two different priorities, and he had to come up with a plan, a solution, right? And so, although we won't necessarily ever face the kind of situation that Joseph faced, we still end up with situations, sometimes on a daily basis, where we're caught between, you know, what do I do? i got two conflicting values here. And I think we can learn from what Joseph did. So with that in mind, uh, let's, let's look at this. First of all, the word love, agape love. Again, we talked about it a few weeks back. It's an ancient, ancient word. Uh, every indication is the ancient Greeks knew it well. 
but they hardly, hardly, hardly ever used it. Uh, I was talking to a good friend of mine who um, stays a little bit more up to date, I do, with the, than the latest product and research tools. And I brought this subject up, and he said, yeah, it's used three times. Like, he was right on top of it. And um, the reason it wasn't used very often was they didn't think it could be done. This idea of, of a love that was completely self-emptying, denying one's own needs and desires for the value or the, or the need of another, they, the ancient Greeks thought even the gods can't do that, so why use that word? So although they knew the word, they never used it. And where it does show up, again, we talked about this before, where it does show up in ancient Greek is when the Hebrew scholars were translating the Old Testament into Greek, and they used it frequently. In fact, it's used more often in that one work the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament into Greek, it's used more by that, by those, by those writers, than all the other writers of antiquity combined. So they, they understood that this love was possible, was possible in the character of God. And if you recall, the verse we really zeroed in on was in the Song of Solomon, where that love of God, the agape love of God, his overwhelming concern for his people is described as the very flame of the Lord. The absolute core of his essence is love, right? Which is to say that if we're going to express love to somebody, we don't do it by just amping up any human compassion or human concern. That's just going to be human love. But by allowing his spirit to move through us, because the only way we can love other people as God loves is by God doing it, by the power of his spirit through us. So that's what agape love is. It's letting God's character fashioned in us, move through us. And there's examples of, of, God, of God's love at that level. In the incarnation, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's a love of self-denial. In the crucifixion, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for a friend. That's that self-denial love. So God exemplified that self-emptying, giving concern for others. And the best we can hope for is that his spirit moving through us will enable us to do that. The second word, righteousness, um, again, we talked about this one not quite as much. Uh, even referenced it last week with that regard to that incident with the Apostle Paul when he was on Malta and he had the snake hanging from his hand. And the locals said, ah, he's guilty because justice, yiki, won't let him live, right? And again, we don't talk about these words from the ancient perspective or the Greek perspective because we're, we're concerned about the mythology. We're not, right? We're not letting them tell us what to think, but to understand how the words were used. I always want to ask the question, when that word was used, what were they thinking? What was the idea? And that's why we look at those things. So again, it's a really old word. In fact, if anything, this idea of righteousness, yiki is the Greek word, is one of the most fundamental words in the language. It goes so far into the language, it's like the elemental chart in the chemistry room. It's an elemental concept. In their thinking, when the cosmos were created and the animals were created, they were given survival instincts. You know, kill or be kill, eat or be eaten, right? In contrast to that, Humanity was given yiki, righteousness, a sense of right and wrong. And we know this instinctively. We know this. Um, when you turn on the Nature Channel and you see the lion, and the lion chases the zebra and captures the zebra, and he starts munching on the zebra while the poor thing's still alive, 
You go, that is gross. But you don't think it's immoral. You don't, you don't, at least most people, they wouldn't charge a lion or a tiger or, you know, a cheetah with immorality for killing the poor gazelle or the zebra and munching on it while it was still alive. It's gross, but it's not immoral. But if as a human being we did something like that, you'd go, that person needs serious help. They are sick. They are sicko, right? We have a different standard for ourselves as human beings. And the Greeks attached that to this idea of righteousness, right? Um, and, and in their mind, that was instituted because as people, we're designed to live in community. And if we're not going to kill one another, there have to be some inbred ideas or standards by which we would live. And actually, that pretty much does fall in line with the creation story right up to the point of the fall in which we lost any standard that would keep us from killing one another. And so God offered his law. Ten Commandments. This is how you can get along with this external set of guidelines and standards. And let's be honest, we haven't done very well with that either. And the world is still a very, very violent place, right? But the whole idea was to create this, this sense of guidance by which we could live together in peace and harmony, right? But that leaves us, this idea of an external sense of righteousness, with kind of a, a problem. Because if that's the only way we define righteousness, and that's where we get into, sometimes we have a negative connotation of that word. If the only way we define righteousness is by conformity, it's to an outward law. First of all, we can't do it. We just don't, we don't, we're, we're lawbreakers by nature. That's that fallen nature. We just can't do it. The other problem is, if external observation of a law is the only means to righteousness, then the only way to be righteous is to wear yourself out doing what's written in the law, and it becomes self-defeating. There's even a legal concept, a legal principle that expresses this idea, and um, you'll have to explain my, or excuse my horrible attempt at Latin here, but it's summa justia, justia injura. And what that means is, an excessive pursuit of justice is injustice. Or an excessive pursuit of righteousness is unrighteousness because it always leads to harm. It doesn't lead to benefit. And the whole reason, the whole reason in this, in this scheme of thinking that righteousness was placed in the human heart, a conscience if you will, was so that we wouldn't hurt one another. We would be able to get along, right? So there's a direct connection then. In order to properly function in this realm of righteousness, it has to be connected to something else. Love. It has to be balanced, if you will, a sense of righteousness with love. And I didn't come up with that. Solomon did. Solomon said this in Proverbs 21, 21, he who pursues righteousness and mercy, some translations say love, he who pursues righteousness and mercy or love finds life and righteousness and honor. The key to success is the balance of both. Righteousness, conformity to a standard, and love or mercy, concern about the well-being of others. In fact, before Solomon said it, Moses said it about the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 and 18, Moses said this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe, he executes justice 
for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Justice for the orphan and the widow, love to the alien. And that's kind of classic Jewish parallelism there, meaning justice or righteousness balanced with love, right? So, uh, if in your upbringing the word righteousness or in your experience the word righteousness, especially a righteous person, is something that maybe leaves a sour taste in your mouth, maybe we need to adjust our thinking about righteousness. Because biblical righteousness is a righteousness that is connected to love, mercy, and compassion. Only then is righteousness truly right. If it's connected with agape love. So, having said that, let's now look at it in this extraordinary man, Joseph. And I think we all know the narrative. Mary, Mary has been visited by the angel who tells her that she will become pregnant. Isn't it interesting? Again, you know the story. They both get angelic visits, right? Isn't it interesting? Mary gets her message before she's pregnant. Joseph gets his message after he finds out she's pregnant. God was doing something there. I'm still working on that. I'm not going to give you an explanation for that, but I just noticed that, yeah. So uh, Mary's been visited by the angel, told she'll be pregnant, she'll have a son, it'll be God's son, she'll call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. In the course of time, Joseph learns of the pregnancy. Now we assume, we can't be sure, because we've got both Matthew and Luke you know, to deal with here, that it was probably after she went to Elizabeth. So as far as we know, when Joseph finds out Mary's going to have a baby. Only three people know. As far as we can tell, only Mary, Elizabeth, and Joseph know. Just their little secret. Excuse me. And we pick up the account, again, excuse me, um, with Joseph deliberating in his mind, that's what the word means, as to what he should do. He is presented with this extraordinary problem. Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to put her away privately. Some key words or phrases here that kind of give us some insight into what Joseph is dealing with. Number one, being a righteous man. That means what? He understands the rules. He understands the right thing to do. He knew what the law required in these cases. Joseph doesn't, under the law, have a lot of choice. He doesn't have a lot of options under the law, right? What is he supposed to do? Well, he's supposed to take Mary to the priests. He's supposed to make a formal accusation of what has happened. There will be a public trial with witnesses and any evidence that can be produced, and the end result will likely be Mary's death, right? Why doesn't Joseph have any choice? Because, and this is where we're at such, an, we're such odds culturally, we see how this issue affects Joseph. And we think, well, what would Joseph be thinking about? Joseph, much broader implications in the Middle Eastern culture. Remember, Joseph is a son of David. Any son that he accepts into his home will be regarded as a son of David. This issue involves the entire clan, the entire family. It may involve the entire village. Now, we're talking about a small village here, 200 to 400 people, probably all more or less related. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> probably all related to David. So the issue of a child who might not be a descendant of David being identified as a descendant of David, it impacts everybody. 
lot of issues involved. So it's not just Joseph acting on his own. He has the concern of how this impacts the entire family, the entire village. So if we can use the expression, his hands are somewhat tied. What is he supposed to do? He knows what he's supposed to do. But it also says he's not wanting to disgrace her, that is to make an example of her. And the grammar is really clear here. These are like, like on a seesaw. He has his, the compelling understanding of what the law says to do, but he also has this compelling desire not to cause her family shame and most certainly not to cause her death. We can't know exactly what he's thinking, but frankly, he's not acting like a betrayed husband, is he? And again, betrothal was like a marriage in every way but one, right? So as far as the law is concerned, as far as cultural standards, he's a betrayed husband. That's the only way they're going to see it, right? It's evident that he's concerned about Mary's well-being even more than his own. And what he doesn't want is her to show up as an illustration in next Saturday's Sabbath sermon. Doesn't want to make an example of her. Doesn't know what to do. He's righteous, knows what the law says, doesn't want to disgrace her. The man is a major problem. And again, he only has a problem because he has these two compelling drives within him. If he only had one, if he was only concerned about righteousness, easy to solve. Haul her down to the priest. She's pregnant, not me, and the priest take it from there. If anything, his standing in the community goes up because he's seen as a real righteous guy. Right? If all, he, if all he's concerned about is compassion, forget the law, forget the community, I'm going to take care of her. See, he only has a conflict because he has both issues at hand. This, by the way, is extremely contemporary for us. Um, years ago, before the Heartreach Banquet, uh, this shows you how easily it transi transitions over the centuries to become very contemporary. Um, we were going to have the Heartreach Banquet, and Pastor Joyce always tries to arrange for the speaker, if she can, to speak to the pastors beforehand, like in the afternoon, right? Roland Warren was the speaker. He was standing right over there. The pastors were in that room right over there, and he said to us, and you could hear a pin drop when he said it, the difference between the pro-life movement and the pro-choice movement is the difference between truth and compassion. He said, I, he said, I have never had any contact with a Planned Parenthood office that did not emanate compassion. They are genuinely compassionate. He said, you might not want to hear that as pastors, but that's the truth. He said, every, every Planned Parenthood office I have ever gone into emanated compassion, and it was genuine. But it wasn't connected to truth. He said, unfortunately, in the pro-life movement, we're really good on truth, but we haven't done so well on the compassion side. He said the only way to resolve the problem, here was, that was his message to us, we're going to have to bridge those two. And I have never forgotten that. And, and for me moving forward, obviously our whole family is involved in this, right? For me moving forward, it will always be with those two issues together, truth and compassion. They have to be connected. Or what? Extreme righteousness injures righteousness. It is unrighteousness, right? So that's just an example of, of how Joseph's problem is in a way not that different than ours. He's got two different issues and they are in conflict with one another. So what does he do? He does what we do. 
comes up with a plan, right? That's our nature, right? Not always the best thing to do, but that's what we do. That's what Abraham did. He needed a child. His wife wasn't a child, so what did he do? He came up with a plan, and we know how that one worked out. Not so well, right? So Joseph comes up with a plan. He pl it says here, he planned to send her away secretly. Again, he counsels within himself, got these two issues. How can I resolve it? Ah, on the one hand, I've got righteousness. On the other hand, you know, I, I love the young lady, and I want to do what's best for her. You know, he's like Tevyev, you know, fiddler on the roof on the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand. He doesn't know what to do. He comes up with this plan, a secret divorce. Now, let's be honest. I've ever thought about this or not. How well is that going to work? And this is a village of 200 to 400 people. And he's going to make a marriage just go away? He's going to make a young woman having a baby just nobody's going to know about it? That doesn't work. It doesn't work anywhere, especially in a Middle Eastern environment where everybody is always in everybody else's business all the time. Everybody knows everything. It's just not going to work, right? The engagement is known by all. The fact they're not yet married is known by all. There's no way you're going to make it work. But it's Joseph's best attempt at keeping these two priorities in balance. And then what happens? God shows up. And an angel appears to Joseph. And look carefully at what the angel says. The, this is verse 20. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Key word, afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Whatever your cause for fear, whatever you're stressing over, forget it. I've got it covered. This is a God thing, right? And then he says this in verse 21. And she will bring forth a son... And you, talking to Joseph now, he's speaking in the singular. It's not you and Mary. He's talking to Joseph right now. You will call his name Jesus. The father's prerogative of naming the son. Yeah, it's God's kid. It is. It's God's child. The reason I think that's critical and again, I just offer this something for your, your Christmas meditation. You can think about this because there's no definitive answer. But there's two opinions, if you go way back into the old, the old writings, the early church fathers, as to what Joseph was thinking. We've, I think, been conditioned to think that Joseph was thinking um, she's been unfaithful. I don't know why she's concocted this story, but she, she had other stories she could have come up with, but this one's crazy. But what's the other option? Joseph could have believed her. You ever consider that? Joseph could have said, wow, as weird as it sounds, I know you, I know your character, and I believe you. Origen, among others, right, as well as some other ancient church fathers, argued that. That Joseph believed her, absolutely. Did that resolve Joseph's problem? No, he still has a problem. This is God's child, which makes you God's wife. I know I'm stepping out of the equation. Sorry, not qualified, right? Which would explain why the angel said, "Don't be afraid." Now again, we have no way. We have no way of knowing 
what exactly was Joseph was thinking, but we know he's a guy with a problem and he doesn't know how to resolve it until God shows up and says, okay, I understand you've got a problem, you had a plan, frankly it stunk, um, but that's okay because plans come and go. Yeah, we make plans and they may look good, but circumstances change. Something gets overlooked, the fact that everybody in the village knows what's going on. An idea that may look great on paper just doesn't work. Plans are great, but they never work out the way they're supposed to. What does work is priorities. And in everything Joseph did, he kept his priorities in front of him, and he kept them in balance. And as I read about this extraordinary man whom God chose, even as he chose Mary, I think that's one of the things that he was looking at. This guy's ability, even when it became impossible to do, he persevered in keeping his priorities right. Which I think helps us. Because, again, we're, I don't think any of us are ever going to have a problem like Joseph's. Not even close. But we do have problems. We do have issues. We have family issues, business issues, all kinds of issues. And sometimes we end up with two sets of priorities that collide with one another. What do we do in that case? My responsibilities to my family collide with my responsibilities to my job. That's just an obvious example. What do I do? Well, uh, to the greatest extent I can, I try to honor both of those in every way I can, trusting that God will, in his time, make it possible for me to do that. Because he never wants us to compromise. There's, not, there's never been a place where God says, okay, in this case, you need to compromise on that. But he will show a way. He will show a way. And as long as we keep our priorities right, we have that confidence. Father, I thank you for this marvelous, marvelous <coughs> picture, <clears throat> picture, Father, of your people in the most extreme of circumstances. And uh, Joseph was left with a problem with no good way out. But he continued to honor the things he knew to be true. He continued to prioritize the things that need to be prioritized. His respect for doing the right thing, the just thing, and his love and compassion for another human being. This young woman he was betrothed to Mary Father. He would maintain righteousness and yet he would take care of her. He would not allow her to become a pariah, Lord. Father, I, I can't imagine that situation, but I can imagine plenty of my own where I've been left with, Lord, I don't know what to do here. But we can have a confidence this morning It's because of what we see in this man Joseph and how you responded to him, Father, that as we act, Father, with honesty and integrity with, with ourselves and with you, Father, you will always come through. You will always show us a way. Father, we're not unaware of the direction our culture is moving. It is moving, Father, into a place where as your people, we are likely to find it increasingly diff difficult, Lord, to honor all of the things we prioritize, where our values, Father, may be harder and harder to maintain. But Father, we're so, we're so glad this morning we have a God who always comes through and shows us the way. So to that end, we thank you, and that end, we face the new day, the coming day with confidence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.